Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Jason Schulman. Joining me today is John Berger, an award-winning journalist and writer and contributor to Fortune magazine, here to talk about his new book, Dateonomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game, published this year by Workman Publishing. John, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. John, before we get into what this book has to do with Jewish studies, tell us what is the man deficit and what social trends that we're seeing can it help us explain? Well, um, the man deficit refers to the shortage of men in what I call the white collar or college educated dating pool. So the, so if you go back to the 1980s, women have been graduating at a high, from college at a higher rate than men uh, going back to the early 80s and, and at a much higher rate than men going back to the 90s. So we're now in a situation in the post-college dating world, so to speak, in which we now have four college grad women age 30 and under for every three college grad men. And obviously this wouldn't be as big an issue if we were all more open-minded about who we dated and married. But the facts and the studies on this show that uh, college grads are increasingly unwilling to date and marry other, uh, and to date and marry people who have not gone to college. So it, it's created this lopsidedness in the dating pool. Mm-hmm. And so the lopsided sex ratios, uh, as you call them, lead to some interesting behavioral patterns. What, what, what is that? Well, in a world in which you have four women for every three men, it doesn't just make it statistically harder for uh, educated women to find a match, it changes behavior too. And you know, there's been a lot of sociology, psychology, and other other scholarly research on sex ratios and their impact on behavior. And the consensus seems to be when women are in oversupply, the whole dating culture becomes more sexualized. Women are more likely to be treated as sex objects, and both men and women are slower to embrace monogamy. Mm-hmm. How have others explained these this sexualized phenomena, and uh, why do you find those explanations lacking? Well, nowadays everybody likes likes to blame Tinder, um, and, and <laughs> right. to me this is kind of silly because Tinder is three years old, and I think if you talk to most young singles uh, in cities like New York or Miami or L.A. or Chicago, they'll tell you that the hookup culture definitely precedes uh, the launch of Tinder, and in fact there's, there's a long kind of nonsensical history in the in the world of blaming the latest new technology for young people having more sex. Uh, back in the 1920s, people liked to blame the automobile, um, even though there was an obvious demographic explanation for why there was something of a sexual revolution in the 1920s. And that is you had 10 million young men who died in World War One, and another 20 million who were injured, many of them grievously. So back then, um, similar to today, you had a shortage of men, and that led to a, a more sexualized dating culture. Right. So we talked about the man deficit and some of the uh, outcomes of that. 
Um, before we let, let's let's get into what this means for for Jewish studies, uh, we'll talk about Haredi or ultra orthodox Jews in a minute. But I think just sticking with the core of the book, the college campus and the post college urban experience, I think also pertains to Jews. Uh, we know Jews disproportionately attend college and then disproportionately move to big cities with other college educated people. So the main story of the book seems to be a case of that famous line that's you know, sometimes attributed to Heinrich Heine or uh, Isaiah Berlin. The Jews are like everybody else, only more so. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I, I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, I'm Jewish. I'm Reform. Uh, I know lots of, of, of Jewish women in their 30s and 40s who have everything going for them dating-wise, but for whatever reason can't seem to meet uh, a decent guy. And I, I think, you know, this is a familiar phenomenon to a lot of us. Uh, and most of us just explain it away. Maybe they're bad at dating or unlucky at love or they have the wrong circle of friends. And obviously there's a whole cottage industry of dating books out there that tell women that they're going about this all wrong, that if only they follow these 20 simple or not so simple rules, they'll meet Mr. Right. Uh, my argument is that this is not a strategic problem. It's not their fault. It's a demographic problem. Mm -hmm. And so um, let's talk about chapter six, which is entitled Mormons and Jews. This chapter was excerpted in Time magazine, uh, and I believe you said it's one of your favorite chapters. It, it is my uh, favorite chapter. It is, okay, good. So what was your original thinking in selecting these two traditional sort of insular groups, and what, in fact, did you end up finding? Well, I Initially, I wasn't intending on doing a chapter like this, but as I was writing and researching the more conventional parts of the book, I would have friends and family and other folks who I was talking to about the book come back to me with questions like, well, I hear what you're saying about sex ratios and the hookup culture, but couldn't it just be that times have changed, that values have changed, and that, um, you know, People are, are, are there's, a, there's more permissiveness when it comes to sex. People are less hung up on getting married. Um, that it's just the times have changed, and it, maybe it's not gender ratios. So I, my, what I wanted to explore was whether um, uh, religious groups with kind of God-fearing, old-fashioned values um, could be just as susceptible to the effects of lopsided gender ratios as you know, secular 20-somethings uh, hanging out at wine bars on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, and it, my, initially, I, you know, I was doing some research on this, and I came across a study that Trinity College did uh, looking at Mormons. And it turns out that uh, among marriage-age Mormons, there are three women for every two men. And we can talk about the Mormon research, if, you, if you'd like, as well. Uh, but as I was kind of waist-deep in Mormon research, I got a call from a, a hedge fund manager who wanted to talk to me about a job. And I explained to him, well, I'm kind of busy with the book right now. He asked about the book. I told him about the Mormon marriage crisis. And his response was, huh, that sounds a lot like the Shaduk crisis. And I Right. You know, I'm I'm Jewish, but obviously not Jewish enough because I had never heard of the Shadok crisis. Um, but I, as I learned, it's a it's a marriage crisis that is oddly similar to what's going on in Utah. Right. So tell us very briefly, um, what is the story of the man deficit in the Mormon community? And then tell us um, why the Shadok crisis boils down to a math problem. OK, so in the Mormon world, uh, 
men in all religion, women tend to be more devout, uh, but usually it's just um, it's by a small percentage point or two. I think the I think throughout most religious groups, about 52 percent of members are women versus 48 percent male. So so men do have a slight tendency to to leave uh, churches or organized religion. However, it's more extreme in the Mormon world. Uh, it's it's closer to 60 percent among people under age 40, uh, 60% of the Mormon church or the, or the LDS church is female. And that's because uh, of the increased importance of the Mormon mission in LDS life. As you probably know, um, young Mormons, particularly young Mormon men, um, uh, tend to do two-year missions that's kind of a mix of proselytizing and community service. And it used to be that going on a mission was essentially voluntary, um, but as the LDS Church has been pushing all able-bodied men to go on missions, um, this has has created kind of an issue. And we get, it, it, more, missions are very expensive. The, the, the missions and their families pay for them themselves. Some families can't afford the cost. Um, it also, also some young men don't want to delay going to college or delay taking, you know, getting into the workforce by two years. So they pass on taking a mission. And what happens is because, uh, doing a Mormon mission is, has become a pre- prerequisite for leadership within the Mormon church. There's kind of a social stigma against not having gone on a mission. And this, um, this seems to be pushing some young men out of the church. Um, and as a result, you have this marriage market among Mormons in which the men have all the leverage because um, a, a material number of young men left the church. And, and this has left this three to two ratio among among marriage age Mormons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, John, there was an article in the journal uh, Jewish Political Studies Review in 2008 that sort of reminded me of the Mormon story and sort of what you were saying um, at the beginning you know, in general, uh, religions tend to be, females tend to be more devout in, across religions. Um, but this article um, found that in, liber- in the liberal wings of Judaism, uh, Jewish boys and men were being um, more so alienated from synagogue life, um, which had, this uh, review found, the auxiliary effect of increasing the likelihood that they will marry non-Jewish women. So uh, before we get into the ultra-Orthodox community, I, I also just wanted, I wanted to add that, that there is sort of a parallel here um, among Jewish men just sort of leaving the fold, right? I, I think so, although it's, it really is all, all religion. Um, the, the women just tend to be more devout. And I think there's a particular age in, in which men are most likely to leave the fold, and I think that's essentially late teens, early 20s, and I suspect that those young men are leaving Reformed uh, or conservative synagogues or congregations around that that age frame am i right that that's when this was occurring um I, i'm not sure but that, that that seems reasonable yeah so i i mean i'm I, i'm not i'm not arguing with the idea that 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 synagogues and churches as well um could be doing things differently to to better retain jewish men but i think it's a fairly universal phenomenon mm-hmm Okay, so let's talk about the ultra-Orthodox community, because there the problem is not 
um, men leaving the community, it's it's actually a math problem. So tell us what's going it's on. It's a math here. problem. So um, in among a certain segment of the ultra orthodox community, the Lithuanian or yeshivish orthodox, um, well, all, all orthodox have a very high birth rate, as you know. Um, you know, according to one of the demographers I, I uh, interviewed, I, I think the the average Orthodox family has four children um, versus uh, two children, which I think is the U.S. average. And I have to admit, four sounds low to me because I just know so many Orthodox families who have five, six, seven kids. But but let, let's just say it's four. Um, the the way the math works is that every one-year age cohort within the Orthodox community will have 4% more members than the, the one that preceded it. So there'll be 4% more 18-year-olds than 19-year-olds, 4% more 19-year-olds than 20-year-olds, and so on and so on. Um, from a marriage perspective and a dating perspective, this wouldn't matter if 18-year-olds were marrying other 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds were marrying other 19-year-olds. But in the but in the yeshivish orthodox world, what happens is the girls or the young women tend to get married at 18, whereas the young men do three or four, sometimes five years in the yeshiva and then maybe another year studying in Israel, and they don't marry until they're 22 or 23. So um, this age gap at marriage creates an excess supply of young women because given the birth rate, there are always going to be more 18-year-olds than 22-year-olds, and therefore there are going to be more 18-year-old women than 22-year-old men. So that, that's the math problem. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, the Shidduch crisis has received a lot of attention. Uh, there was an article in the New Republic in February that was called Ultra-Orthodox Jews are Panicking Over Their Matchmaking Crisis. Um, what kind of things did you hear in your research about people panicking about this? Well, it's, it's tough for both ultra-Orthodox and for Mormons as well, because in the, you know, in the secular world, a, a single person obviously can lead a fulfilled, happy life without ever getting married. But I think in some of these these very you know, ultra religious communities, and I, I, would, I would this covers both Mormons and ultra orthodox Jews, so much of women's um, identity and and role in the in the community is defined by marriage and and motherhood that it becomes really hard on these on these single women, and there's this intense pressure uh, put on very young women, actually sometimes teenage girls, to physically appear as marriageable as possible, you know, as young as 16 or 17. And you would hear these stories of of 16 or 17-year-old girls who uh, maybe, the, you know, they're a size 8 dress size and they have people telling them if they, if they don't lose weight, they'll never find a, a husband. Right. Uh, the Sisterhood, which is a, a blog of the, the forward, um, had an article in early September criticizing the Shidduch crisis for leading to an orthodox obsession with female beauty. Uh, who is Ita Halberstam, and why did she provoke such a reaction in 2012? Well, she's a Jewish author. Um, I, I should probably disclose that uh, that she's not a fan of me at this point. Um, <laughs> but she wrote a column in the Jewish press um, a few years ago 
uh, um, her own son was going through the, the matchmaking process and um, she felt bad about uh, how many options he had and how few options his female peers had. It, but in the in the telling of this, she recounted a story of going to a community event where um, where parents of young men um, uh, would meet prospective matches, young women. And she was struck by how unattractive so many of the women were. And she said they weren't wearing makeup. And then she went so far as to, as to suggest that some of them undergo plastic surgery in order to appear more attractive. And, you know, to me, I, I mean, she she emailed me and she argued that she was well-meaning in this and she just wants to help young women. But 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 to me, this is this is emblematic of a sickness uh, that, that this notion that 16 and 17 year old girls or 18 year old young women should feel pressure to change their bodies, to have nose jobs, to lose a few pounds in order to appear marriageable. Um, I, I think it's incredibly unhealthy, and um, th- that was my reaction to her column. Certainly others, when it came out a few years ago, had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a scholarship um, by cultural historian and historian of medicine, Sander Gilman, um, who has written about Jewish nose jobs, and he says that nose jobs uh, show us the desire for invisibility, the desire to look like everyone else um, that has shaped um, how Jews have altered uh, their bodies, both men and women. So what um, what notion of beauty do you think these Jewish mothers who are concerned uh, think that Jewish men want? I, I, I'm not sure, but, but you know, when I think about the Jewish nose jobs, I can't help but imagine, trying, to, trying to picture what the reaction would be if a, if a African-American uh, uh, leader um, suggested that young African-American women, um, you know, get their broad noses redone or undergo skin lightening or hair straightening in order to improve their own marriage prospects. I I think rightly there would be an enormous uproar over this. And Ida Halberstam told me that that after she wrote her column, there was a, uh, a doctor in Miami who offered to do nose jobs for some of these women and as it turns out, after the surgery, several of these women found husbands, and this was her ex- her justification, her explanation. I, I mean, to me, the, the mere fact that some of them got married after they got nose jobs certainly does not justify um, the horrible message this sends to young women. Are there any religious changes going on because of the man deficit? I got the sense that you know, women and their families know that they need to be on their best behavior to attract the, the very few men that are available. So there's a lot more strict conformity. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a lot more sense that you're being observed and judged. Did you get any uh, sense of that? Well, I mean, the uh, are you familiar with these resumes that young women are expected to, to provide to their male? Uh, uh, for, for better or worse, I am not. You're not. Okay. So, so, um, the women who are going through the matchmaking process are expected to fill out these resumes that are then reviewed by, by men. And I assume early on, a lot of it was more mundane stuff about where you grew up and where you got a synagogue and who your parents were and that kind of thing. But a standard part of these resumes and these resumes are, are frequently um, uh, distributed by uh, 
matchmakers um, who I think work with synagogues. Uh, but, but on these resumes, these young women are not only expected to disclose their own dress size, but the dress sizes of their mothers. So these young men can project uh, how, uh, you know, what their wife-to-be might look like after she has four kids. I, I mean, again, t- to me, this is a sickness that, uh, that, that people in that community need to, n- need to sort of come to their senses and realize that, that um, this kind of pressure on young women, um, not only is it unhealthy, I, I, it certainly doesn't conform with Jewish values. Mm-hmm. So let's think about two uh, approaches to this. First, what if the crisis is largely exaggerated and, you know, yes, there are some women who are not getting married, but not more so than in other contexts or in history. Um, Why are some people inclined to make the crisis seem worse than it is? That's approach number one. And approach number two is let's say the crisis really is as bad as everyone says it is. Uh, What are the ramifications for the community? Well, it's only, I mean, most most people in the community do get married, so I think statistically, it's, it's a, you know, it's not a crisis for the majority of ultra-Orthodox Jews. It's a crisis for the young women and their, and their families. Um, now, I, it shouldn't be a crisis because, like I said, there's no reason why um, a man or a woman shouldn't be able to lead a fulfilled life, uh, a happy life. Um, a productive life without being married. But as you know, in that community, marriage and parenting and parenthood are, are not lifestyle choices or are not really lifestyle choices. They're kind of an expectation built into the, into the system. You say that you have sort of a control group um, among ultra-Orthodox Jews. Can you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, Hasidic Jews um, culturally are similar, and they certainly have a similarly high birth rate. And Hasidic Jews also use matchmakers to pair their young women and men for marriage. But what makes Hasidic Jews different is that the boys generally uh, don't um, spend as much time in yeshiva, and they get married at age 18 or 19 at the same age that the girls get married. So you don't have this age gap at marriage in the Hasidic community. And as a result, if you talk to either Hasidic Jews or academics uh, like Samuel Heinlein, who study the Hasidic community, they'll tell you that Hasidic Jews don't really understand what the what the Shaddok crisis is all about. So to me, the fact that that there is no Shaddok crisis in the uh, Hasidic community and also some of the yeshivish rabbis have realized this and are now suggesting that the young men begin the matchmaking process earlier. I, I think this, this shows that this is, this is largely a demographic problem. It's not a cultural one. Mm-hmm. I want to read you something and get your reaction. Um, I asked Carmel Chiswick, who's one of the foremost experts on how economics shaped Jewish practice, to read your uh, excerpt in time. And she said that on the difference between the yeshivish and the Hasidic communities, uh, there is research, research to show that when the purpose of marriage is procreation, so having lots of children, men want to marry younger women. And so that you'll find that, uh, you know, on average, there's an age difference between spouses, and that'll be a good predictor of the average family size in the community. For most American Jews, the purpose is companionship. And so economic analysis will predict that you'll actually find people with very similar ages getting married. So the difference in marriage patterns between the yeshivish 
which has sort of large range, age range, uh, and the Hasidic, who sort of marry people their own age, may suggest a difference in how these two groups understand the very purpose of marriage. Did you hear anything like that? I, I, I didn't. Uh, and I think in the yeshivish world, it didn't used to be this way. I don't think there was as much pressure on the young men to, to, uh, to spend years and years in yeshiva. Um, and I think, you know, 50 years ago in this community, the young men were not delaying marriage in the same way. They, but, but nowadays, I, this is an exaggeration, but there's a little bit of a everybody becomes a rabbi mentality in that world in which all the young men are expected to spend years and years studying Torah and Talmud. Um, that I think it, that, that, that is why there's more of an age gap now than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, John, we are running out of time, so let's um, talk a little bit about some of the solutions that you propose, both for the overall uh, crisis um, and specifically for um, the Jewish community. Well, for the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, I do have a suggestion, and I, you know, I'm not enough of a, or I'm not at all a religious scholar, so I have no idea whether this would pass muster. But to me, um, it's wrong to blame the matchmakers um, for this problem. Um, the, these are hardworking people, usually uh, women who are trying their best, um, but they're fighting against a system that's, that's incredibly difficult. To me, it would be an act of kindness, an act of compassion, if the rabbis in the ultra-Orthodox community would agree not to not to marry women age 21 or younger, um, it, because not only would this reduce the pressure on teenage girls to appear as marriageable as possible, it would also improve the marriage prospects of some of these mid 20s or late 20s, quote unquote, older girls uh, who um, who do feel like they're in crisis and seem unable to to find to find their match. So to me, the, the solution has to start with the rabbis. And my suggestion would be to, to um, agree not to marry 18, 19 year old young women, to encourage them to delay marriage till 21 or 22. Mm-hmm. And in your book, you do mention uh, sort of a, uh, you know, maybe not a romantic uh, notion, but there are, there have been some monetary uh, plans put in place. Yeah, so um, are you talking about the dowries or about the, the Shaduk initiative that was uh, – the, the, there was one group that, that came up with the idea of creating a, an economic incentive for, um, uh, for matchmakers to pair um, uh, marriageable men with women either their, old, their own age or older. Um, I don't think this got real far be, in part because people found it a little bit um, degrading because the size of the payments to the matchmakers went up with the age of the woman. And, and I, this, I mean, I, I think from an economic standpoint, I understand the logic, but when you're talking about real people, it's, um, it's kind of unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Well, John, we've taken up a lot of your time. So any parting thoughts you'd like to share and uh, what are you working on next? I, I, you know, I'm still working on my next book idea. I'm not sure if it'll have anything to do with um, with marriage. Um, I, I guess my my parting thoughts involving secular dating. Um, if obviously, if there is an oversupply of women in the 
college-educated dating pool. There's going to be an oversupply of men in the working-class dating pool. And in fact, that's the reality. And my belief is that in coming years, we'll see a an increase in what I call mixed-collar marriages, which are pairings of educated career women and working-class guys. And in fact, just the other day, I got a tweet from a woman who told me that she met her husband after she unchecked education on her online dating site. John, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The book is Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. The author is John Berger. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at newbooksinjewishstudies.com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Judaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.